0: This message has been a, a real challenge for me and so I don't come to you with any boastfulness or anything like that, but I just want to share with you my own heart has been challenged immensely and and um, I'm working on some of these things that this message and these verses bring out. The, the title of the message, as you'll see, is God Deserves How Much? You know, we've been on a massive journey thus far. We're just adding up 34 sermons so far from Romans. And um, that's just from one that's chapters 1 to 11. And um, we've got five more to go yet. Th- this is ringing a little bit. Jordan, can you stop that? Maybe I'm too loud, I don't know. Or is that what it does? My oh, yes. Um, but what we've, we've done, what we've done here is... We've followed what God has said through the Apostle Paul, and I love the title that is given to the Apostle Paul right at the beginning of of his book. He was an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. I love that expression, the gospel of God. The gospel simply means good news, right? And so it's God's good news, and so that we can rejoice in. And so he was an apostle set apart from the gospel of God, and we've been made to consider, and we've had brought before us out of the text over and over the cost of our redemption, uh, and how God is faithful to those whom He has chosen, who He has called, who He has justified, and who will He will glorify and all through the work and person of Jesus Christ. We have looked at those in a number of occasions, those truths. And we've also seen how God will respond to anyone who hears and responds in faith to the gospel. That's good news too, right? We're saved by grace through faith and um, And so we can rejoice in that, you know, and all this, as we have looked at the first eleven chapters, this amazing doctrine, this amazing teaching this this truth about god 's redemptive plan for the world, it kind of leaves us speechless and numb somewhat as we contemplate and weigh up the immeasurable blessing that God has uh, bestowed upon us and so paul does he fills in the gap as it were, and he He comes in with that amazing doxology that we had last uh, time we were together at the end of chapter 11. And he sings this out on our behalf and um, and he honours God for all that he's done. But as you know, as the commentator, theologian Griffith Thomas said, after doctrine comes duty. After revelation comes responsibility. And after principles come practice. And that is why Paul here confronts us with this very next word that we see in our text in chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, this word is chronologically set in its place in the text for a very important reason. You see, this word immediately and intentionally, what it does is brings the reader out of the heavenlies back to earth, as it were. This word demands from us all that we weigh up, that we weigh up all the perfections of God and all that we can think and consider of His His redemptive grace and His mercies gifted us in Christ Jesus It causes us to to measure all that we have learnt thus far, how much we are indebted, how much God's good news deserves from us. So on one hand it causes us to consider what the Lord has done and we were brought back, okay, now what's the deal for me? It prompts us to see that what we believe and what we value in God's mercy needs to have implication in our lives. My dear people, the Lord deserves so much from us, right? But what does He deserve? What does He deserve? How much does He want and demand from us? What are our lives as Christians... To look like as those who are indebted, and we are indebted, to God for his abundant love and mercy and grace. What do that look like? You see, these are vital and necessary questions that this word, therefore, instigates for the whole of the rest of the book of Romans. But initially, here in these first two verses we are told some very succinct and pertinent answers about how much the Lord deserves from us. And as I was thinking about this, I could not help but reminded of D.A. Carson. Some of you know just D.A. Carson. He's one of my favourite theologians. And, And he wrote a book some time back called Basics for Believers. And I've actually used it a number of times with students and discipleship, etc. But he wrote in his book and as an introduction, and some of us here actually have heard this introduction read out just recently. And, and what Carson does in his introduction for this, of this book is he, is he writes an imaginary scene or paints this imaginary scene in words. And this imaginary scene accurately depicts how, how many Christians only want the gospel as an attachment in their lives. Only enough to suit their personal needs and their agendas. He paints this word picture of a Christian going into a one-stop gospel shop to get his or her desired fill, so, so to speak. And let me read it to you. The person goes up to the shop and he says, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I, that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I, I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial and, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want, I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people. But I myself do not want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I would find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Now, as humorous as that may sound, folks, can I suggest this word picture accurately portrays too many believers today? The question is, does it paint a picture of you? Are you a $3 gospel Christian? How much of our lives does the gospel of Jesus Christ deserve? Are you a three percenter, can I say? Or perhaps somewhere in between? Or a hundred percenter when it comes to giving back what He rightly, God rightly deserves from us? This leads us up to our text this morning. And God willing, we will see... That there is another word picture painted, but this time an inspired word picture, where God tells us that the gospel, his gospel, deserves a whole lot more than three dollars worth. And we'll have our next heading up there. And the heading says, what compels us to give to God what he deserves? And we find this in verse 1 of our text in the first part of it. We first notice that Paul uses the word I urge or I appeal or as the King James Version said I beseech you. So who is he addressing? Who is he addressing? Who is he writing to? Paul here rightly assumes that his readers are believers. They're his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And they are those who are beneficiaries of God's abundant mercy and grace just like he is. And so therefore he calls them brethren. The unsaved person. In Paul's time, and right until this time, the unsaved person, the unregenerate person, cannot give God his body and mind, like this verse, these texts tells us. You know what? Because God has no possession of his soul. In other words, it's only those who we see are core brethren in this text here, who are unable to live out and to give to God what he deserves. So on this relational basis, because those who are saved, those who are Christians, those who are truly born again, um, they are, belong to the family of God. They are brethren. And so Paul, in his apostolic authority here, he appeals to believers with a non-negotiable plea. To totally dedicate themselves to the Lord. In other words, he appeals to believers, those who are indebted to God's abundant mercy, to put into practice what now is already an inner desire of their new transformed nat- natures. Because as believers, we all have that, right? We long to please God. Even though we struggle and we battle against everything else, there's an inner desire to please God. Well, Paul appeals to that so that we might be who God wants us to be. And so the compelling truth, the compelling motive that needs to be driving our dedication that God deserves is the mercies of God. You see that? The mercies of God. Notice the plurality of this word here. It's not mercy singular, it's mercies plural. Brethren, by the mercies of God. And as we think about this, all of God's graces are mercies, right? After all, nothing we have in Christ is earned. No matter what we do, we cannot earn them. All we have in Him is the result of God's bountiful mercies toward us. That's why we sometimes sing, count your blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And so, they are bountiful mercies, they are Many mercies. And so Paul obviously wants his readers here to consider the Lord's great kindness towards us. That would certainly include his forgiveness. It would certainly conclude his, what we call, propitiation. That's where the Lord Jesus appeased the wrath of God that was against us, but he took his place. It would certainly include the freedom the Lord Jesus gives us Another of his mercies would be that he has reconciled us, because we were hearing before we were once enemies. He has justified us, and he will yet glorify us. He's adopted us into his family. He's given us eternal life. He's given us the holy spirit, and he's promised us a resurrection of our body. How's that for status? Some of his mercies, but probably overarching all this, overarching all this like a big umbrella. Of all the mercies are God's super abounding love and grace mercies, I call them All these and more are the beautiful, undeserved mercies of God. And you know what, folks? The genuine believer can say, yes, because they're ours. They're ours. Why? Because God has chosen to bless us with them. You know when I was a kid maybe like you I had a special hate for some of the jobs that I was given to do at home. But I was motivated to do them regularly and religiously. And it wasn't out of love for my dad I might say. (laughs) But you know what it was? I was motivated, I was compelled I was stirred to do them (laughs) By the well-known and the well-felt, often-felt, wrath of my Father. Dear people, we have a heavenly Father. He's a wrathful God too, don't make a mistake about that. God is just not only a God of love, he's also a God of wrath. But in his mercy towards sinners, he poured out the wrath that we deserved on his beloved son at Calvary. And all the wrath against all our past, present and future sin, Jesus Christ bore the full brunt of that at Calvary. And by believing in Him, by trusting in Him as our sin-bearer and our wrath-bearer, we go free. How awesome is that? That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. Ephesians 2, four. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love, Which he loved us. He blessed us with the mercies of his salvation. You know, this is what should compel us to give back to God what he deserves. We do not have an angry God who is ever waiting to punish and therefore we are compelled to serve him. No. Some religions teach that, by the way. You always got to appease a God. A God. And so God is like this big angry grandfather in the skies who is ready to beat them up if they do something wrong. No, no, that's not the kind of God we have. That's not the God of the Bible. Our wrath toward our sin has been dealt with. So we serve a loving God who is a merciful God. And Paul here urges believers in Jesus, therefore on the basis of God's mercies, We respond appropriately in giving God back all that we have and are, for he surely deserves it. This brings us to our second PowerPoint. How much does God deserve from us? We see this in the second part of of, uh, verse 1. How much does God deserve from us? It is true that God not only has ownership of our souls, right? I trust he has. Because God has an ownership of your soul. You're still unsaved, you're still unregenerate and you need to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's by faith that we entrusted to the Lord our soul for eternal salvation. That's what uh, Paul the mind of Timothy. That he's entrusted to him against that day, his soul. But as we know, the Lord also wants our bodies as well. They're not $3 gospel Christians, folks. You know, sometimes Christians get all lopsided and a little testy on this. Because many believers have this, this dualistic concept of what being a follower of Jesus Christ is. Some believers, and I'll call them $3 Christians, have the idea that, yes, rejoice, and I do rejoice, that my eternal soul is safe and secure in the arms of Jesus. But when it comes to laying my whole life down and, and, and my temporal body, as it were, at the Lord's disposal, that's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. Dear people, how much does, a good, how much does God deserve from us? He deserves that we give Him both body and soul. Right? Right? Remember Mark chapter 12, it's amazing you yeah, this because it coincides with how we're to love the Lord. We read this in, um, in Matthew, uh, Matthew 12 and 30. I'll just flick that over. And um, it talks about... It talks about there... Um, no, I thought I had it right, got Mark, no, Mark, sorry. Mark 12. Mark 12 and 30 says... And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So heart and soul, they're kind of synonymous, but we have the three. With all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so the Lord, we give him our souls, but he wants our bodies as well. Our souls are in his safekeeping. John 10 tells us that no man shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. Because we've entrusted our souls to him by faith. And so the Lord, God of heaven, he owns the inner man of the believer. But he also wants the outer man that houses the inner man. And this is what Paul is on about here. This is what he's on about. He, what he does here in this, in this first verse, he uses this Old Testament word picture of a sacrifice. To call believers to what? To call them to present their bodies to God as a holy and a living sacrifice. a holy, uh, holy and a living sacrifice It sounds like a bit like an oxymoron because when we, when we think of a sacrifice, something is dead, right? But here we are to be living sacrifices. And so as believers, we all know that this specific call of offering or presenting our bodies to God, it's not just something that we do once and okay, from then on it'll be all, all over and, and everything will be honky dory No, 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 no. It's something that we need to come to again and again and again. It's something constant. And why is that? Why is that, we can ask? Why isn't it just like when I came to faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in Him, from that moment my soul is secure and, and, and ever safe eternally? Well, why cannot I go through the same kind of thing and offer my body to them? It is because these bodies are not redeemed yet. They're not redeemed yet. They're still prone, as you know, and I certainly know, to sinful passions. They become defiled by sin. And you know what? And we can even commit sins like any pagan can commit sins. See, although our soul belongs to God, folks, presenting our bodies to Him is an ongoing needful mission that God deserves from us. Or as Warren Worsby once put it, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. And that's what happens. Even the Apostle Paul knew the frustration of that. Chapter 7, that's why you cry, Oh wretched man that I am, who shall free me from this body of death? We belong to the Lord, but because of our failure to continually present our bodies, which have the potential to manifest evil longings and selfish interests and greed and lust and lies and, and, and deceit, we will keep crawling off God's altar. In other words, these mortal bodies have the potential to become the instruments of sin and unrighteousness if we fail to yield, present them continuously to God. But you know what? It's these unredeemed bodies, folks. This is amazing. It's these unredeemed bodies that He calls us, the Lord calls us, to be given to Him totally. Why? So that He might use them for His glory. In this world. That's why they must be holy. That is set apart from sin and offer to God to do his bidding. Whatever that may be. Whether it may be a mum in the home and bringing up the kids. Or a dad at work or in the office. Or on the shop floor. Wherever that may be. Or on the mission field. He deserves this total dedication. A dead sacrifice is no good, you know. I believe this stems right back to two classic examples that we have in Scripture. Remember Isaac? There he was, stretched out in the elder, his father Abraham, with a knife raised. It would have been absolutely futile if Abraham had brought that knife down and slayed his son. It would have been futile if Isaac died. The sacrifice of Jesus of Calvary was another one. It would have been futile if he never rose from the dead and was alive forevermore. It would have been futile if he never rose from the dead. Both these living sacrifices are illustrations of who and what God calls you and I to be. As believers, we are made alive in Christ And are blessed with all the spiritual and eternal blessings in the heavenly. But now, but now, the Lord wants us to be alive for him in our earthly, temporary bodies. People, the Lord deserves our bodies to be presented to him. You see, your body matters to God, folks. When we look at them, they're not very pretty. Well, I speak for myself. (laughs) They get old. And all sorts of things, they pack up, don't do what we really want them to do, sometimes. But your body matters to God. It's the, body, it's the body that God has given you, no matter what state it's in. You know, the Corinthian church got all this wrong, by the way. They got this all wrong. They felt that their souls were God's, absolutely. Safe in the arms of Jesus kind of thing, you know. Are blessed for eternity, but my bodies—oh yes—they knew that they were sinful and they were unredeemed. So this, our souls were God's, but our bodies mine. And so, therefore, I can carry on and continue in my sinful lifestyle and my whatever I want to do. That's what they thought. That's why Paul had to come and rebuke them and say, "Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit?" Within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Often in traditional evangelistic services, or evangelical services I should say, down through the years and probably still presently, we, we hear the invitation to give your hearts to the Lord. And I've probably even said this myself. Uh, and we speak of people, okay, uh, as souls, kind of this. Okay, souls one thing, but bodies another, and that is true. We all have a soul and a body. But you know what? The Lord wants to save people, folks. He doesn't only just want to save souls. He wants to save soul and body. Soul and body. God cares for your body, not just about your soul. Psalm 139 verse 13 to 16, it tells us how that God formed your body and knitted it together while you're still in your mother's womb. Our salvation is being worked out, not just in our souls or spirits, but also in our physical bodies as well. I wonder if we think seriously about who we are as a person in our bodies and, and how we relate to people and relate to the world around us and, and relate to the culture around us in regards to what we, deserve, what we owe God or what, we, what God deserves from us. Do we, do we seriously think of our bodies as belonging to God this way? After all, you know, the Lord has no eyes except your eyes when they yield yielded to Him. He has no ears except your ears when they yield it to him. He has no hands, except your hands when they yield it to him. No feet, except your feet, when offered to him. God deserves our all folks. But you might say, but does that mean that I've got to clean my act up? I, I, look, I know what kind of person I am. I know how I can be. I know some of the sinful things that I've done and maybe still involved in. You need to repent on that one. But does that mean that I need to clean up my life before I can be acceptable to God or before God can... I can offer myself to Him? Matthew 11 and 28 and verse 30. Is a well known scripture, and you will know, and it says that, um, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? I'll just read that so I won't misquote it. And uh, it goes on to say, Come unto me, all ye are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In those three well-known verses we have body and soul involved. Rest of soul is a wonderful thing. But you notice what he uses there, the word yoke. Using once again the imagery of a two oxen or three or four oxen all teamed up for a purpose of its owner. And the yoke is one which is yoked on one to another. And Jesus says here, "My yoke is easy." We often think, "Oh, that's going to be too hard to offer myself." I'm just not willing to go all out because of what God might want from me. He says and promises, "My yoke is easy, and my burden is light." God never says, clean yourself up and then I will use you. He says, come to me just as you are and I will clean you up. He never asks us to change ourselves, which we cannot do. If it is, it's a waste of time. He invites us to join to Him with all our faults and all our failures and all our limitations and all our hang-ups and all our temptations that we experience. And as we come and as we present our bodies to Him and in our coming, we are slowly changed to the image of Christ. And this is just not a once a thing. It's something that we need to do constantly over and over and over again. You'll be surprised what He can do with a person, with a church, with this church. When in response to the mercies of God we lay all we have and are on God's altar as living sacrifices. What you do with your body matters to God and we are called to yield to offer and present them to the Lord as being dead to self but alive to Him. Why? For what reason? Why do we put on the yoke that's easy and walk with it? Because this is the... Fully dedicated way. This is the 100% way of our spiritual service of worship that is acceptable to God. In other words, our whole lives should be an act of worship. I'm not just talking about coming to church, our whole lives should be an act of worship. For he deserves that promise, right? But how? How specifically, you know, without being illegalistic, do we, do, we, do we begin here? After all, um, you know, we, we can do a whole lot of external stuff, right? Even like coming to church. Just like the Pharisees. Man, they wore long robes, they prayed X amount of times a day, they, they did this and they did that. We can do a whole lot of external stuff like that. You know, where, where do we start as believers in 2013? On this mammoth mission, how on earth do we begin with being an acceptable living sacrifice? That's a good question. We could get all biblical and say, oh, well, you've got to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That's how you start. Yeah, it's true, but where where does it start? Well, Paul doesn't leave us floundering, and this brings us up to our third point here, because he tells us where it begins. And these two verses, I might say, set up the foundation for all the rest of the book of Romans. Don't miss these two verses and just start doing all the do's and the don'ts of the rest of the book. So not only does the Lord have our souls from the moment we come to faith, He also wants our bodies yielded to Him. And the way that happens is when we begin to give our minds to Him. You getting the picture? No room for $3 gospel Christians here, right? It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Now this is where it gets really difficult for Christians, because, well I find it's difficult, and I'm pretty sure you will too. Because it's in the mind our new natures and our old humanness, human, humanness mix and mingles, a fair bit. Right? In other words, it's in the mind that we make choices that are either in line with our new natures in Christ or either in line with our old humanness. But we're commanded here, and note that it's a gentle command that Paul gives here, It's a gentle command, so it's not optional. It's not, okay, yeah, if you really want. Do not be conformed to this world. That is, our thinking, or our default mode to the circumstances of life, they should not be dictated and governed by the world's patterns. That's what that means. Our worldview, as Christians, is to be increasingly... A biblical one. Not a regressing one where culture more and more dominates. I like J.B. Phillips' translation here where he says of this, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mould. In other words, if you are to be an acceptable living sacrifice to God, start point number one, you must... Your thinking must not be patterned after the spirit of this age. So there's some spiritual mind work that has to be done, right? You must be transformed in your thinking. By how? By a mind renewal. See that? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there is some mind work done. And so, how does that happen? Do I just flick over a new leaf and say, okay, from here on, this is what I'm going to think? I'm going to chase evil thoughts out of my mind and, uh, or what I consider to be evil thoughts. No, that's not how you do it. A bodily sacrifice, acceptable God, it'll only be a genuine offering. It'll only be a genuine, acceptable offering when it comes from a transformed mind. In other words, if you are not being governed by a spirit-filled mind, you will not be a living sacrifice that's acceptable to God. So you can just flip back and forth. And this is why we must constantly what? We must constantly fill our minds with the Word of God. Otherwise, if you don't fill it with the Word of God, you are going to allow culture to fill it with their standards and hence you'll be dictated by that. This is why we must go as Christians all out, and I don't mind using this word, and be mind-washed or brain-washed and indoctrinated by the word of God. This is why we must let, and I'll use the scriptures here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart, Colossians 3.16. This is why we must be, in this church, every single one of us, gospel-saturated people. And not $3 gospel Christians. Because if we are, our minds and wills at best will be spiritually weak and worldly and found wanting. My dear people, may it be that we with unveiled face Paul tells the Corinthians. Behold the glory of the Lord and are are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And folks, do you know what happens when we yield our minds to God through the Word and His Holy Spirit? We prove, get this, we prove in everyday life And amongst all the horrible and nasty and good and lovely and whatever circumstances happen to us, and they all happen to us, by God's providence, in all the ups and downs, in all the decision-making moments, in all the moral, moral and ethical and social dilemmas of life, you know what will happen? We will prove the will of God in our lives. And as we grow in that divine knowledge, folks, we will only then do, get this, we will only then do what is good and acceptable and perfect. You want to live right before God and be perfect before God? Fill your mind with the Word of God and be transformed in your mind. Thank you. This transforming work is a constant work. As I said before, it's not something that just zaps us and we're right for the rest of our years. No, no, no. It's a constant work because, why? We still have this unredeemed humanness that tempts us to what? To follow the world. Our minds and our wills must be constantly transformed through God's Word and by His Spirit. And this is why it's important to be here and come under the sound of the Word of God. This is why it's important that you must discipline yourselves to... Read the scriptures at home, to come to home groups, to come to prayer meeting, to fellowship with other believers, to be discipled by someone, or disciple someone else. You're a three dollar gospel Christian? So what does our Lord deserve from us, folks? He has given us so much. He has given us so much. And beside all the spiritual blessings in Christ, we have so much outside of that of temporal blessing. We have health, we have wealth, we have homes, we have times, we have money, we have families, we have jobs. He's even given us this church building here. That's awesome, right? And Some of these things, they're wonderful things. They're blessings from God. We are blessed with so much, so much in fact that we can even give the Lord back our time, our money, our energy, our resources, our skills. But what is it that the Lord deserves from us? You know what? All that stuff, even this building, all our money, all our time, all our skills, all our resources, will only ever ever be garbage to God if we do not give him ourselves first so what is it going to be a three dollar gospel Christian may it be that we wholeheartedly give our all to him Isaac Watts wrote those wonderful words that Britta's going to put up on the screen now the last verse of the hymn we sung before that beautifully sums up what our blessed Lord deserves from us. Were the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering or a present it would be far too small to offer back to God. Because love so amazing so divine it demands from us my soul my life my May God bless his word to us this morning.